I think a number of you here know me. I'm a longtime gay activist, and uh, uh, our report entitled Grossly Indecent is uh, about a subject that's close to my heart. Um, and uh, I do want to acknowledge one of the other authors of the report is Dr. Tom Hooper, who is the uh, young, uh, handsome fellow down there <laughs> at, at the end of the table. Um, so in this uh, uh, oral presentation, I'm going to offer some highlights of my paper. I'm also going to try and uh, respond to some of the uh, issues uh, raised in Professor uh, Maynard's paper. I thought it was quite thoughtful and provocative, but it wasn't available to me uh, when I wrote mine. So, and I, I do hope that uh, that Professor Maynard is satisfied that I don't at least look too heteronormative today. I, I, I tried very hard to at least look gay this morning. I hope I pulled it off. <laughs> uh, um, uh, he appears to approve. Very good. Uh, now, as Professor Maynard laments both the alleged demise of the old-fashioned grassroots LGBT rights movement and the undoubted lack of resources devoted to LGBTQ2 history, I, I do want to draw attention to the talented team that created the report. It, uh, that's why I prefer the term lead author because it was the work of, uh, of many hands. Um, and those included some very uh, highly respected grassroots activists like uh, Maurice Tomlinson, um, who just finished uh, running the first Montego Bay Pride, uh, no small feat, um, and also was involved in the first uh, Uganda Pride where he was actually arrested uh, along with the other uh, activists in Uganda. So uh, there's no one who I respect more as a grassroots activist in the world than Maurice. Um, and with respect to uh, history, well, of course, we had the lovely and talented Dr. Tom Hooper helping us out, whose uh, PhD was about the uh, bathhouse raids. And um, I want to uh, thank Tom for his uh, enormously uh, valuable contribution uh, about uh, the historical aspects of our report, which are also uh, close to my heart. I learned some of the things about the history of the law that I didn't know myself. So um, it was uh, very helpful to have him involved. And uh, he is uh, continuing to be involved in some of the sequelae of that report, for which I'm very grateful. Uh, I do want to let everyone uh, know here that there will be a revised and updated version of the report available before the end of the year. Um, and uh, it will um, contain some fairly uh, significant revisions. Uh, nothing, we're not backing down from anything that we said in the report, but um, there's going to be some, uh, what I view as significant improvements to uh, such things as the intersex chapter. And uh, there was uh, one significant omission uh, in the report, uh, which is kind of embarrassing to me because of my personal involvement in it, and that is we didn't make any comments about the MSM blood ban in, in the uh, <coughs> original report. It was simply an oversight. So that will be addressed in the, in the new report. Um, before the end of the, <coughs> the year, we're also expecting that uh, there will be a bill introduced in Parliament with respect to cancellation of convictions. 
I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I do know that it is in progress. <coughs> uh, some of you will know that uh, the German Bundestag uh, uh, passed a bill to that effect uh, before the last election uh, for all of the Section 175 convictions since the uh, end of, this, of the Nazi era. They had previously cancelled the Nazi era convictions. And of course, we promised an apology to the LGBTQ2 community from Prime Minister Trudeau by the end of this year. Well, some people are skeptical about this apology for a variety of reasons. Um, some Canadians I meet find it odd that they're that in a country that is a world leader on LGBTQ2 rights, that we have anything to apologize for. After all, we're all nice Canadians, not like, well, you know, those other people. Um, and, but there is one group of Canadians who, uh, in my experience, uh, generally appear to be allergic to apologists. And I regret to say, apologies, and I regret to say that I'm speaking of my own profession. Uh, Elton John may have been thinking of lawyers when he sang that sorry may be the, seems to be the hardest word. Um, so why is that? Well, I, I, I do find myself in an odd position because I'm here criticizing my own profession. But I, uh, I do believe that uh, if apologies are poorly understood as suggested in the description of this program, I think they're extremely poorly understood by many lawyers, and particularly defense lawyers. Uh, so it's, it's my position that the notion that official apologies by governments, um, and apologies by others, but particularly official apologies by governments, the notion that this will lead to some kind of legal liability is actually an urban legend. It has no basis in fact or in law in Canada. And on the contrary, a well-timed and well-crafted apology, official apology, may serve to limit or even avoid legal liability. Certainly, apologies do not create liability where none exists. Accordingly, the lawyer who automatically advises a client to refrain from an apology as the so-called safest course, and that's what I hear all the time, it's safer, it's the prudent thing to do. Well, in fact, that kind of advice is actually professional negligence, in my opinion. And frankly, in the context of government lawyers who are supposed to be acting in the public interest, I would say it's arguably unethical. Apologies, in my view, are a social good. For we lawyers who are involved in adversarial matters, it's always in the interest of clients to resolve those contentious matters fairly. Apologies are a cost-efficient means of advancing that objective. They have the, advantage, the added advantage of being the ethically correct thing to do in many circumstances, and especially those with respect to historic wrongs. That certainly includes the proposed apology to LGBTQ2 Canadians. And I'm going to say a few words about uh, the reasons uh, for the uh, LGBTQ2 apology, but 
that apology is a very good example of my thesis that an apology does not lead to lawsuits. Uh, in this case, arguably, the absence of an apology led to a lawsuit, um, but certainly uh, the apology, there, there is a lawsuit going on. In fact, my uh, colleague, uh, Christine Moore, is representing the Department of Justice on the other side of the class action lawsuit that I have is here today. And uh, while uh, the apology may have some impact on our ability to settle that case, it certainly didn't trigger the lawsuit. There was no apology when that class action lawsuit was launched. And there is no expectation that if there is an apology that it will be used in any way as evidence in the context of that class action uh, lawsuit. Um, in my view, uh, when one examines the significant literature about uh, official apologies, uh, the LGBTQ2 example is a classic case of where a well-crafted apology is uh, <coughs> called for and may be effective. Well, <clears throat> why do we end up in this circumstance where lawyers are terrified of apologies? Um, I think that it really uh, stems from uh, two things. Uh, the first is a failure to realize the risk associated with not apologizing. There is this bizarre concept that doing nothing is a risk-free choice. It is not. And the best example I can give of that is from my own personal experience the first time that I was met with a refusal to apologize, and that was in the context of the Tainted Blood scandal, where the Canadian Red Cross Society famously refused to apologize. And I had meetings with them about it, uh, trying to persuade them to change their mind. And they dug in their heels and were quite adamant that it would be unduly risky for them to apologize. Well, what happened? They didn't apologize initially. They ended up with billions of dollars of lawsuits. They had to go into insolvency protection under the CCAA. They were stripped of their assets. They lost the major program that they had for the uh, blood transfusion service and faced criminal charges that eventually resulted in a guilty plea a $5,000 fine and a $1.5 million donation to aid the children of victims seeking higher education. <clears throat> That's what we in the legal profession call a bad result. <laughs> uh, so it's clear from that example that the strategy of refusing to apologize, the strategy of silence, was a disastrous legal strategy for the Red Cross. The second uh, reason that I think that lawyers uh, are making a mistake when they don't consider advising their client to make an apology is the other side of the coin. This notion that an apology will amount to an admission of fault that will lead to lawsuits or be used as evidence is actually an alternate fact. It has no 
basis in reality. There is not a single case, and I, being recorded now, I defy any lawyer in Canada yeah. to bring forward a case to my attention where an apology has been used as the basis of a lawsuit, where an apology has triggered a lawsuit or has been used as evidence to prove liability. It ain't ever happened. So for me, I'm very glad to have this opportunity to say the emperor has no clothes. Uh, this theory has absolutely no basis in anything other than the customary uh, tendency of lawyers to keep doing the same thing that other lawyers have done before them without really understanding why it's being done. Uh, there is this um, tradition in our, in our profession that if you do things the way they've always been done, nothing bad will happen. Well, as we've seen in the case of the Red Cross, something very bad happened to them. Uh, but in many other circumstances uh, where uh, apologies have been made, and there have been more and more of them, uh, nothing bad has happened, and sometimes very good things have happened. So uh, in the, uh, I, I wanted to say a little, uh, a few words about why an apology is important. Uh, an official apology is important uh, to people who are the victims of historic wrongs because first and foremost, they're an acknowledgement by the person who offers the apology that their actions have harmed others. Doesn't mean that they are legally responsible, but their actions have led to harm to someone else and that this harm should not have happened. The implication of refusing to apologize in those circumstances is either taking the position that what happened in the past was justified or legitimate, or worse still, one can think of, for example, the Turkish position on the Armenian genocide, that it never actually happened at all. Uh, both are uh, social socially disastrous, in my view. Uh, I remember very well the first time I went to Dachau and there was no recognition of the persecution of homosexuals by the Nazis. And my conclusion was, it appears that the people running this museum seem to think that we deserved it. And the second reason why an apology is socially useful is because it does provide succor to both the affected victims and members of the community. Um, I can tell you that uh, in my experience uh, in law, nothing has been more meaningful to my clients who have been injured than to hear the person who injured uh, them acknowledge uh, the harm that was done to them and how that person regrets what happened and wishes that it hadn't happened. Um, and the last point is one that I think is sometimes uh, overlooked, and that is that an official apology provides a collective voice for a contrite society. 
when something bad has happened, and I will use the example of tainted blood again, um, the tainted blood uh, scandal became very well known in Canada, and I think most Canadians felt that something really awful had happened, and that it was terrible that these people had suffered so much. But as individuals, there's nothing that we can do to connect with those victims of that historic wrong and express our compassion towards them as uh, fellow human beings. But when our prime minister stands up, in, or the, in that case it was the health minister, stands up and expresses that apology on behalf of Canadians, that uh, is uh, something that is helpful to those of us who feel helpless. Um, the first apology in the uh, modern context uh, is the one that was made by uh, Germany uh, for the uh, persecution of uh, the victims of the Nazi regime after the Second World War. But they have become more and more common. We've had many in Canadian history. We've had an apology for the Chinese head tax, for Japanese internment, uh, and for some things that happened a very long time ago, the persecution of Ukrainians in the First World War, and uh, recently the racial exclusion of Sikhs for the, um, uh, with respect to the Komagata Maru incident. Well, there's no one alive from the Komagata Maru anymore, but that apology was deeply meaningful to the Sikh community because it was an acknowledgement that what had happened to them was wrong, and it was uh, not going to happen again, at least not under our watch. In none of the examples that I've cited did an official apology trigger civil action. Um, in cases where litigation was ongoing or was subsequently launched, not once did uh, plaintiff's counsel make use of an official apology as evidence of liability on the part of the Crown or anyone else. And of course, in some of those cases, like the Kamagata Maru, there really was no one around to uh, to to bring a uh, to bring an action. I also want to highlight for those of you who are not lawyers that some provinces, many provinces, not Quebec notably, but this province, for example, uh, has enacted an apology act to try and encourage people to uh, make apologies and to provide express protection for it. And yet, I have seen this reluctance. Um, I was involved in the Elliott Lake Mall inquiry and no one apologized for that catastrophe and yet many, many people contributed to that disaster that killed two innocent victims and ruined the lives of many others in that community. And when I brought to their attention the Apology Act, I was met with all of these technical legal arguments about why they were worried that it wouldn't apply to protect their client. So no one apologized. It's uh, reprehensible in my view. And frankly, I think that lawyers who are advising their clients not to give apologies in those circumstances are not giving cautious advice. They're giving bad advice. Um, in my paper, I've cited, there haven't been much <coughs> research on this in Canada, but uh, there's been a considerable research in the United States that shows when an apology is made, in the medical context in particular, there's far less likely to be a lawsuit at all. And if there is a lawsuit, 
it's going to settle. I can tell you I had a case involving tainted blood where the doctor, while his lawyer was out of the room, <laughs> apologized to my clients who had a baby who had been given a tablespoon of contaminated blood and was infected with HIV as a result of that transfusion. And the doctor said, if I could go back in time and make a different decision, I would. I've had to live with that every day. I feel terrible for what's happened to you. We were able to settle the case because of that apology. I have given you in my paper uh, the criteria from uh, Professor Blatt's um, uh, ten and et al. from Waterloo about ten criteria for an apology. I think it's a very useful framework because, as I think we're going to hear from one of the other speakers, sometimes an apology falls flat. It's not done properly and it can actually cause more harm than good. So doing it well is important. I also want to uh, uh, explain about the uh, use of the word. Professor Maynard asked what, was wondering why I use the word rehabilitation in the report, and that was me, by the way, that particular choice of word. Um, that comes from German law, where in Germany, they have this concept under their constitution that where the state violates the rights of a citizen, the state has the obligation to rehabilitate the citizen, to put them back in the situation they were before their rights were violated. It's not a concept that is, has been developed under Canadian law, but I think it's very appropriate in this circumstance that that's what our government ought to be trying to do. Because what we've been doing up until now with the LGBTQ2 community is simply stopping the discrimination. We've allowed people to marry. We've given their, their CPP pensions going forward. You know, the first time we actually got historic redress was in the Hislop case that I took to the Supreme Court of Canada. And even then, the Supreme Court of Canada was very reluctant to give us full retroactive payments and put us in the same position as uh, heterosexuals. They went through all kinds of contortions to try and avoid doing that. And I asked myself, what's wrong with rehabilitation? What's wrong with simply restoring the injured person to the situation that they would have been if their rights had not been violated by their government. Well, I'm looking forward to the apology that's supposed to be coming later this year. Um, I know that uh, other governments have made apologies in Melbourne, Australia, in uh, Wellington, New Zealand. There has been apologies. Um, and I'm very happy to see my colleague from the Just Society Committee, Marie-Laure Leclerc, co-chairing the Apology Advisory Council with openly gay MP Randy Boissonneau. Uh, I know that Christine Moore won't be one of them, but I certainly hope that lawyers don't get in the way of this process. Uh, it's difficult to explain why some lawyers continue to quake at the prospect of their client making a public apology. But whenever officials withhold an apology or deliver a limp expression of regret, I can easily detect the unseen hand of lawyers 
restraining their client from doing the right thing. This baleful influence is not only unfortunate, as I have argued, it's actually based on a misapprehension of the law. So in offering such advice, especially for government lawyers, I believe a disservice is done to uh, the clients of those lawyers and to our society at large. As Elton John sang it so well long ago, it's sad, so sad. It's a sad, sad situation. Thank you.